what will your future look like? The job you do today could be different than the jobs of tomorrow. Some see this as a challenge. At UCF, we see opportunity. A chance for you to grow your knowledge and strengthen your skills from anywhere life might take you. With in-demand degree programs and resources for your success, UCF Online can help you prepare for the future and all the possibilities that come with it. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning, I'm Kelvin Thompson. And I'm Tom Cavanaugh. And you're listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. Woohoo! Hey, Tom. Oh, Tom, is that... What was that? What? Is that you? No, hey, I, is, have, we, have we brought our guest back, who was who our mystery wooer from last episode? Well, funny you would that. ask that, Tom, because, you know, you had this genius idea of perhaps... You know, there's the mystery woo, and I said that could be a whole new segment. So now it is. So we I didn't actually know I have, had that idea. <laughs> we actually have a mystery woo now. So mystery wooer, why don't you identify yourself? <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm Susan Wegman from the University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Central Texas. I'm the associate dean of digital learning and innovation, and. I've been listening to TopCast for a lot of years, it seems like. <laughs> and seems like just, a lot of years to it, us, too. <laughs> <laughs> Since the very beginning, I should say. Uh-huh. And um, I really appreciate you all, and I, I love the way that, uh, you know, you, you seem to hit on topics that we're all dealing with, and uh, I just really appreciate it, and I, I just enjoy the uh, the feedback that we get and and I love sharing your your top cast interviews and uh, just keep it up just I appreciate it thank you well, thank you so, so I'm much for that. Wooing. <laughs> yeah so thank you for being our mystery woo uh, yes. it's great to see you we are we are old friends and colleagues back from yes. when you used to work actually here at the University of Central mm-hmm. Florida and you've been yeah. on the show before so it's great episode fifty five dear listeners should you not have heard Susan elsewhere you can listen to her <laughs> there episode fifty five. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thanks so for joining us. We don't have, Susan doesn't have coffee, but you and I do. <laughs> that's, maybe that's you do true. have coffee, but not well, the same. Well, you know. Maybe, <laughs> not, maybe not this coffee. I got coffee. You got coffee. Uh, Two thirds of us have the same coffee, as far as, I, as far as I know. Well, Susan, you're welcome to stick around and, um, and join us and, and watch, uh, watch and listen and partake and comment as you, as you wish. But yes, we do have coffee, and you're probably wondering, Tom, what you're drinking. Always, always wondering what I'm drinking. Um, yeah, we wonder that too, Tom. We're wondering else. That. what's he drinking. Yeah. That's that's that's. People ask me that too. Well, today's coffee is a single origin Ethiopia from Panther Coffee in Miami, Florida, or Miami, or Miami, depending on you know how old in Florida you are. And specifically, this coffee is called Suke Kuto. Now, Suke Kuto. Suke Kuto. I had to look that up. Suke Kuto is a coffee farm, washing station, and drying station in the Odo Shakiso district of Ethiopia. And Suke Kuto was founded by this gentleman named Tesfaye Bekele, whose goal is that coffee production is done in an environmentally sustainable way and that provides, get this, a livable income for producers. 
In fact, he maintains a nursery which provides surrounding farmers with coffee seedlings. And also, it acts as kind of a model farm benefiting the farmers in the area. So this coffee comes from both Suke Kuto directly and from the surrounding area. So we're getting to taste the benefit of the dissemination of knowledge and skill brought about by Suke Kuto. So how's the coffee? And how's the connection? Okay, I like the coffee. It's good. Um, I don't. Have you had Ethiopian coffees before? Have we had that on the show? Yeah, we've had. A, I think I've, I've I meant think to look so. this up because we've had it a few times, uh, off and on. I'm I'm rather fond of Ethiopian coffees in in general. Yeah. All right. So it's good. I approve. Panther Coffee is any relationship to our friends at FIU? I think Miami. I think I think that might be where the Panther comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the connection goes, you've um, you've given me some of these. You know, audio breadcrumbs to help. <laughs> we, we do what we can. Yeah, you've you 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 punched a few words, giving a little extra emphasis, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that even Tom can maybe make the connection. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cue in on um, livable income, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a model, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, farm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, both of those things, not the farm, but the model and mm-hmm. the livable income, are related to our topic today. Yes. Yeah. All so right. an A plus? So an A plus? A. a. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're a tough grader. Yeah. I, I still no, remember the one no A plus inflation. I got in undergrad school. I think I've still got it in a box somewhere. I'm like, dude, you gave me an A plus? I'm holding on to that thing. Yeah. Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, that, that is, you made the, you found the connection uh, because many of us within the online education field have commented during the COVID era that the more online we already were pre-pandemic, the more resiliently we have been able to weather the challenges of the pandemic's effects on our institutions. All institutions have their own unique contexts, and there are no one-size-fits-all approaches, but some institutions are helpful, as you said, as models so that we can learn from how they've innovated in solving their local challenges, and we have such a model to share today. So, Tom, you interviewed Ajita Menon recently. Since we've been working, teaching, and learning remotely, you want to tell us about her and your interview a little bit? Sure. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. So Ms. Ajita Menon is the president and CEO of Calbright College um, in California, the new all-digital innovation-oriented community college um, that is dedicated to serving the residents of California. Previously, Ms. Menon held positions within the, the California community college system and uh, in the U.S. federal government. Notably, she served in the Obama administration as special assistant to the president for higher education policy at the White House Domestic Policy Council. And um, I will say that uh, this is part one of a, mm-hmm. of a two-part interview. We just had a lot to say, <laughs> or at least I had a lot of questions for her, yeah, and, and yeah. she was very generous with her time. Mm-hmm. And um, we felt that it was more than we could fit in one episode. So for this month and for next month, the mm-hmm. interview segments will be on um, with Ajita. Uh, mm-hmm. This first half, uh, we talk mostly about the Calbright model about how it works, how it's structured, and then next month we'll get into some leadership questions because she's faced, if you followed any of the press around Calbright, there have been some challenges that she's had to deal with and, and address, and I think it could be very instructive for other leaders around the country to, to kind of hear how she's, how she's faced those. 
But first, we talk about for this month the uh, the model itself and um, and and how it's structured for workforce development and other kinds mm-hmm. of things for for California. All right. Well, no further ado, through the magic of podcast time travel, here's your interview with President Ajita Menon. Well, Ajita, thank you so much for being on TopCast. Thank you for having me, Tom. So um, there's a lot I think we could talk about. Uh, I've been uh, kind of following along with the, with the launch and development of Calbright since its inception. I think it's been a really interesting model, having uh, kind of had a front row seat for the creation of UF Online here in Florida, looking at a, a state-level initiative to serve a, a particular audience through online learning. Um, I, I wasn't aware of others besides maybe that one and, and what was happening in California. And I wonder for our, for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar, if you could kind of give a background uh, of what Calbright is, maybe what its mission is and, and what makes it special. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Um, Calbright actually was really conceptualized as something, uh, as a community college that could be focused uh, as a public sector entity with a very population-specific approach to help lower-wage, unemployed, and otherwise economically displaced individuals. And so, you know, its origin story is very much about um, differentiating itself on addressing some of the gaps in serving that population that we've historically experienced in uh, the post-secondary education marketplace. It was uh, designed to be a new kind of college that was more responsive and adaptable to changing conditions in the economy, but also how those transformations actually needed us as higher education institutions to respond differently than we may have previously done. Um, so it is, uh, it, you know, its mission is uh, to serve that population. Its mission is to do so in a way that meets with uh, the real lives that people have. Uh, these are individuals who often have uh, um, cannot access some of the t- more traditional forms of post-secondary education because their schedules don't allow, because they are needing increased flexibility because of demands on their time and resources, whether it is um, the amount that they work or whether it is, uh, you know, child care, ne- child care that they're uh, responsible for, elder care that they're responsible for, uh, those kinds of things. And, um you know, I think that that is truly what makes it unique. In many cases, we look at the workforce mission uh, of a college as a little bit subordinate to uh, the kind of degree level mission that they have. So most of the focus is often on uh, transfer level coursework at the community colleges or within the four year market degrees. Um, And here we want to think about Uh, those individuals for whom that might not be uh, a feasible entry point into uh, post-secondary learning and skills building. And so, um, you know, that's what we are designed to do. That's the entire focus of what we do. Um, And uh, I think that's one of the the key key ways in which we're distinctive. Uh, We're also distinctive because uh, we are focused on a competency-based education model. And that model uh, often doesn't mean much on the employment side of the market, but what it really means is that rather than the kind of traditional time-based approach that most conventional education takes on, which is the, you know, the amount of class you attend and um, the, uh, 
the the time you spent uh, spend inside and outside the classroom, uh, we really look at skills mastery. So the model is designed to allow individuals to demonstrate mastery over skills that they're learning, not just kind of those high level learning objectives, uh, but really getting down to the grain size that provides a better translation opportunity for what the needs might be in the labor market uh, for specific jobs or occupations or within specific industries. And and if I'm not mistaken, you, you're currently focused in three workforce areas, correct? Uh, we currently have three pathways. So we're focused on um, healthcare technology uh, with the inaugural credential that we have in medical coding, uh, as well as in the uh, IT uh, IT field. I with two uh, two programs: one in IT support, one in cybersecurity. I describe that because. Um, there's sort of a, a a reality that we think about at the college a lot, which is IT can be more expansive and can be everything. <laughs> so uh, if we if we focus our college on thinking about the aspects of industries that are uh, in need of new skills that are technology based, um, that's how we see ourselves uh, adding additional programs, adding additional uh, direction to skills building, micro credential opportunities, etc. And is is the the program free for California residents? Am I correct in, in yeah? The that? program is currently offered for free. We're in the building stage of the organization. You know, we launched uh, with students less than a year ago, and um, it was important to us that in the early offerings to individuals, it was. Um, it, that it was free. You know, we were we were in a we are in a uh, more of a beta state where we are um, refining aspects of the model. We're looking at new models um, that are responsive to some of the uh, realities that we're seeing in the in the economy. And so, um, in the future, we would anticipate it continuing to stay either free or at the, you know or, or very low cost. Have you have you found communicating the concept of, of competency based education difficult or have people picked it up because it's still relatively new? And I, I imagine that, you know, that students still need a little bit of education on, on what it is. Yeah, I think uh, it's the worst, uh, maybe one of the worst monikers to explain. So um, we talk about it, especially in educational settings, because people understand generally what uh, what the competency based approach is. Um, it's a distinction that I don't know is as relevant to students themselves. I think the, there's a simpler way of explaining uh, a college and a program that gets you the skills you need to transition better into the labor market or to enter a new industry or to, um, you know, in the context of that interaction that they are in that goal that they're seeking um, in getting a new job or a, a promotion or a, a change of industry. So I think it's, I think the way that we communicate it is evolving. We're testing some of that out and um, we know it's not going to be continuing to say competency-based education to students. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, as you're as you're out there making those communications to students, I wonder how do you how do you find students? How do you make them aware of this opportunity? How does does Calbright have like a marketing budget, or is it a part of like um, um, a, a larger state uh, communications initiative? 
Yeah, I mean, we have a very lean marketing budget. I think we are we were we would be doing something very wrong if we were uh, spending at the level of some of the large for-profit colleges, for example, where they can spend as much as half their budget on that. Uh, we really want to optimize our resources towards the educational investments themselves um, and the services investments more than anything else. And um, so what we are trying to, what we are building is a, a sort of savvier way. So really being able to test in specific communities how best to reach uh, individuals uh, and using that to inform uh, a, a broader uh, outreach strategy. Uh, I think we have the benefit of not just being standalone as a college, but being a part of a very important system in California. The California Community College System uh, is comprehensive. It's one of the most largest, uh, it's one of the largest systems in the country. And um, it it uh, it is important for us to think about how uh, the work that we do in in learning about how to reach into specific communities complements enhances also supports that connection to the broader system. So um, I think there's two ways that we think about uh, how we should uh, expand marketing resources, but more importantly, how we think about marketing in the context of outreach and connectivity to the public education system. You you mentioned workforce kind of a orientation, um, and I and I I've seen in some of the research I've done um, that you've got connections into employers. Um, how do you work with the uh, the employer community within California to, to try and make sure that you're bringing them students who are prepared and you're and you're matching your curriculum to meet what they need? Yeah, this is a, a great question. It's it's also an evolution for us. You know, when we first launched the college. We were in a full labor market where there was a premium on talent at all levels, not just at the BA level, but even to some degree at the at the sub BA level. And um, you know, within the first five months into the program, our entire economy shut down. And uh, what it reflected was changing conditions for employers that we had to take account for. Uh, so whereas some of the early thinking was very much focused on singular employer relationships um, within within the specific industries, we we're providing educational opportunity in, it quickly became clear that there's so much uncertainty around that, that the original idea of kind of a pay for placement type of model, uh, which was um, what the college launched with, was not tenable in the in the economic conditions that we would be entering in. So what it forced us to do was to really think about where some of this information and knowledge lies, where we, where can we get more reliable information from industry, industry, from employers, both about current opportunities, but also what's on that horizon line in terms of skills we need to be preparing students for in the near future um, that would have both the broadest applicability to them and um, sort of increase the size of potential opportunities for them. And that's what we're very focused on now. We think the secret really lies into being able to leverage more of the public um, workforce infrastructure in the state. Um, and it is also speaking to some of the gaps that we observe and that folks who work in that space have uh, shared with us uh, about where some of the, the gap exists between what information we traditionally get from employers, which is, you know, either a passive analysis of, uh, you know, burning glass or MZ data, which is important uh, and signal bearing um, word of mouth information from employers about what they think their needs are, though those are all also not precise. Um, 
and really being able to supplement that with the next level of understanding. The next level of understanding is really not just what is the job opening that we forecast, um, but what is our understanding of some of the business and operational decisions that are happening in the industries that we're in that give us an insight into how skills might change or evolve over time. So um, we are we are very reliant on um, partnerships in different ways to really to really find better ways of doing that. Because if we cycle through the same things we've done over and over again uh, in workforce development, particularly you know lessons learned from the past recessionary period and recovery period, um, it doesn't go far enough to meet the gap for the individuals that we're talking about. So um, that's it may have sounded like an abstraction, but I can make it a bit more specific, which is uh, you know if we think about some of the shifts to cloud-based computing and the rapid shift into online. If we look at where the current unemployed population is in California, what skills they have, what we understand about, let's take an industry that's not likely to rebound to its fullest like frontline retail. Um, What we understand about that is there are inherent sales skills, inherent customer service oriented skills. Those all have value and those all can can be translated into roles that are tracking the tech transformation that's happening in in e-commerce, for example. Um, so part of it is kind of looking at two levels, uh, the level that might get somebody that next job now, and then that understanding of how um, we can reliably discern what the skills are go- skills needs are going to be for those employers going forward. So it, it involves, you know, the and, right, like a, a more and. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, that's well, how we're and, thinking about it. And sorry, the last no, thing I'll just mention is we also think about this on a regional basis because California is, uh, as you know, a uh, tremendously, uh, extraordinarily sized state. It is uh, very much a microcosm of the rest of the country. So we have very different contexts, urban, rural, different industry mix, all of those things. Um, and there is, uh, there is, has been a, a good amount of foundational work in thinking about economic development uh, as a regional strategy that complements this approach. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's a complex state, right? It's very large. And uh, as you said, it's very diverse. And I I imagine what Bakersfield needs is very different than what Los Angeles needs or Sacramento or wherever. Um, And and you were touching on on some things um, that I I find really interesting. it's almost like you're looking at you're, you're supporting two different dimensions. One is the the workforce needs of the here and now. What what do employers need to and and what skills do potential employees need in in order to make that match? But you're also um, addressing some of that uh, future of workish stuff that like McKinsey's been doing and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, skate where the puck is going to be kind of kind of thinking. And that's difficult, right? Because you may not be able to necessarily always get that from employers. So I, I commend you for, for trying to, to do that work. That's hard. And it requires some investment and popping your head up from the, the day-to-day work now and again to kind of look at the horizon uh, to, see, to see what's coming. You had mentioned um, at least one impact of the pandemic, and that was another question I had, which is, uh, you know, how has the pandemic impacted uh, what you are doing or has it? You know, it's you're an online college, so maybe it hasn't. Um, you know, I think we were, as a college, uh, already adept at working in a remote setting. We have individuals throughout California that are employed by the college. Um, and so that transition 
itself was was um, was not as difficult as it was for some other organizations who are used to much more face to face in person. Um, that being said, this is true for our students. This is true for our staff. Uh, life overtook us all in ways that made working different and difficult and learning different and difficult. And, um, you know, I think that was, uh, that was as an organization and continues to be as an organization, uh, something that we're working to try to uh, better support individuals in the organization around. For our students, it profoundly has impacted them. Unsurprisingly, uh, all of the economic impacts in this period have been concentrated uh, in equity communities and in, in low income communities. And, um, our students come from those demographies. And so we, you know, we did a COVID survey and we found that of our uh, beta cohort of students, you had six, almost 60% of them had experienced either job loss or a reduction of work hours or um, uh, uh, furlough. And uh, to to understand that in the context of what folks were already managing, um, it, it uh it, it's been extraordinary. We've, in, in response to that, tried to step up our support to understand better um, what is it that our students are needing more. So whether it was device access or Wi-Fi hotspots, we did some of that. We did some of that uh, to support our sister institutions where we had capability to do that. We also um, had to think a lot about how to connect individuals to resources like mental health resources or other things that were um, such, a, such a critical dimension of managing through this period that we're in that that are the are sort of first order needs relative to um, you know the the learning opportunity, and so you know I think we you know we continue to evolve our services to try, try to find new ways to do that. In some cases, it was being assistive with unemployment insurance um, uh, and and other areas of need. Uh, so we're constantly tracking that, and we're we're trying to find new ways to to intervene and to support and to be more present in their lives as a supportive force. Well, as as we're recording this, I I just happened to see I think it was yesterday in the in the Chronicle or or Inside Higher Ed that overall nationally uh, I think community college enrollment was down like seven and a half percent this yeah. this fall, um, unsurprisingly, right? Um, we, we certainly experienced something similar here in Florida. We have a, a very large tourism service industry kind of workforce and uh, they were really hit hard by the by the pandemic um, did did you experience a, a drop like that um, and if so what are you doing to mitigate it yeah um, we uh, we experienced uh, some drops it's you know it's hard to know under what conditions people have separated from the institutions you know I think we would hypothesize absolutely that that had an impact on uh, the ability of students to progress for all the reasons we identified. Um, but I, I do think these things are a temporary readjustment, I think, um, in and for different reasons, perhaps. So for us, uh, the population we're serving is particularly uh, struggling. And so um, we would we would imagine there's some going to be some fluctuations from readjustment around that before individuals can find the space in their lives to manage uh, an additional thing like the educational pursuit. Uh, I think we're, we're hoping that as we get better at uh, connecting with that individual 
at that point in time dislocation where they're electing for unemployment or experiencing that loss, that we might find ways to, to better bridge that. I think for other institutions, um, they've had to do this very rapid shift into online. And there's... Um, it's table stakes and, you know, everyone everyone applauds and I, and I do too, how rapidly they were able to, to put content online. I think that that is a, that was a tremendous first step. The reality is that um, putting content online is the is the smallest part of the challenge and um, the all of the other things that it takes. It's it's a redesigned experience for uh, uh, for a set of institutions that um you know, often sometimes they've even rejected that migration to online, and even when they have embraced it, um, it has been uh, with a with a degree of, of of difficulty. And so, getting folks who have conventionally taught for a very long time to do something that is so much harder and different, um, I think, is uh, there's a lot required. So, I think there's there's going to be um, a lot that has to happen there in order for us to. To um, to support students in the right way that keep them keep them in our institutions, um, and and I think the other reality is that we're because we're just in this adjustment people period where people are figuring things out. You know, we haven't seen the shoe drop on the recession, and the um, we haven't experienced the full reopening of the economy. However, that reemerges to know once the dust settled, uh, you know are folks going to be able to reasonably return to the work that they had or uh, whether they are going to find themselves in need of those skills. And typically, you know, during a recessionary period, you would, you sort of, you sort of see that. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for, for describing the, the, the Calbright model, a little bit of the history, the, the, the students that you serve. Thank you. Well, Tom, that was your interview with, President Ajita Menon. Yeah, as I said, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, uh, it's, it's, I'm fascinated personally by the Calbright model, yeah. the competency-based aspect of it, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that it's at no cost to yeah. the, the residents of California, the, mm-hmm. the very practical, intentional workforce focus, yep. especially given, um, given the, the kind of context we're all living in with the pandemic right now and with... A lot of people losing their jobs or getting mm. furloughed or looking to be um, maybe a little more, um, you know, safe in their employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that, I think, is is to the good. Uh, so I've, I've been really fascinated by it since it was first proposed and have been watching it uh, mm-hmm. from, as you know, as I said, 3,000 miles away. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with all that. Um, a couple of things that stood out to me um, that are really broadly applicable um, is I liked her framing of kind of during the COVID response, right? That the the table stakes, as she put it, of institutions just getting content online uh, versus the differentiated performance and helping students succeed online. I think that was an excellent insight. And I think yeah. um, it also speaks to the focus of their model, right? That whole idea of, of um, I think she said, Calbright is population specific. Uh, it's an admirable connection to serving a particular demographic of students well, right? Rather than just sort of, well, we're a, we're a college, right? You know, and, it, and it gets to um, to some of the stuff we've talked about previously: the difference between remote instruction and online instruction. Of course, yeah. And, and I think she's she's getting at, at basically the same concept there, maybe mm-hmm. with a slightly different 
slightly different framing. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't get a chance to ask her about, um, yeah, like, if you've read any of Phil Hill's uh, blog, he has um, been a little critical of of some of the implementation of Calbright mm-hmm. before, in fairness, before Jita was was president. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't get a chance to really talk to her about that. But honestly, I think you could chalk a lot of that up to the fact that they're a startup and they're still with a machete hacking their way through the forest, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. setting their path. It's hard to build a college from scratch. Um, so, I, you know, I'm willing to cut them some slack while they while they try some things and refine processes. Yeah, I love to, she talked about their beta cohort of students, right? <laughs> 60% experienced job loss or furlough, that's not something to celebrate. But to me, I thought what was great about that is it showed that they were on track with their demographics, right? You know, in terms of who they're trying to reach, bam, um, those students experienced job loss or furlough. Um, yeah. And they're just, very specific about the, they're actually not awarding any sort of academic hmm. credential. They're, there's, mm-hmm. they're not offering associate's degrees. They're doing these very targeted certificates. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's meeting a particular need mm-hmm. in the system, in the mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. And um, in the next episode, the next or the next, the next uh, interview that we do with her, yeah. we, we talk a little bit about some of the partnerships that mm-hmm. that they're setting up with with some of the other uh, more traditional community colleges in the system in yeah. California. And I, and I think that's an that's an interesting um, uh, kind of laddering of opportunity for students in the state. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'll, I'll maybe I'll, I'll let this be the last thing I say about this, but the thing, the other broadly applicable thing that I took away from your interview, this first part, is um, the importance of flexibility, was a word she used, in serving students who have real-life adult responsibilities. And um, amidst our, our general COVID response, um, as you know, I, I remain concerned that we're going to have a... a um, an industry-wide reconceptualization of online, um, you know, that's kind of a watering down due to our remote instruction. And I think that their hyper-focus on a particular set of demographics for students, you know, she said, you know, we've got to be, we've we got to provide flexibility for students so that they can get an education, so they can get, uh, they can get gainful employment and, and workforce development. And that kind of laser focus is what you need. You know, we, we've got to make sure that we don't, oh, let's try to cater to, you know, let's have a bunch of synchronous stuff all the time. Let's serve 18 to 24 year olds only. You know, we got to remember, <laughs> dance with the one who brung you, you know, our non-traditional students with adult responsibilities. Yeah, 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 agreed. So, uh, you know, again, really, really interesting conversation, really interesting model, and um, we'll learn uh, a little bit more uh, next month. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is a egregious uh, an indulgence here, but. I wanted to offer a um, a pairing suggestion for this episode, uh, if you'll. You are the me. coffee sommelier. <laughs> yeah, sure. Got to got to offer a pairing suggestion somehow. I was re-listening uh, to this um, uh, interview again last night, and I just happened to listen right after it uh, an episode from the podcast Solutions for Higher Education, which originates from Southern Utah University and is conducted by SUU's president and a member of his cabinet, Scott Wyatt and Steve Meredith. And they're starting a year-long series on disruptive innovation in higher ed. So the first episode of that series, uh, their episode 92, Innovations in Higher Ed, Lessons Learned, pairs excellently well with this episode on TopCast, featuring this interview with President Ajita Menon. I recommend it.
Good. Just listen to ours first. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which I think you are because you've right. heard this. If, but... you, if you haven't already, then yes. Yeah. That's, that's true. If you're fast forwarding through it, stop and go back yeah. and rewind. And, and <laughs> That would and, be the magic of podcast time travel. That, that would be. Why don't you land this plane before I jump out? Sure. All right. So uh, if we had to kind of put a bow on this. Um, mm -hmm. Higher ed institutions are facing increasing challenges. We know that. And being workforce focused and innovative in delivery are going to be increasingly important, in a, especially in a post-COVID landscape. Yeah, for sure. And new models such as Calbright can serve as an example for, for many of us. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's right. And I can't wait for everybody to hear the second part of your uh, interview with, with uh, President Menon. All right. Well, cool. uh, I guess... I we should thank Susan before Susan, we do thank anything you. else. Susan thank here? You I thought she left. Oh, she's still there. Look at that. <laughs> she's she's hiding here. behind my Google Doc. She's Hi, been Susan. hanging out. Thank you so much, Susan, for being our mystery woo. It was great That's to right. see you. You're welcome. Thanks. No problem. Come back next month if you want. Uh, I don't know if it'll be as much a mystery anymore, but uh, you could. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, until next time, for TopCast, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Tom. And she's Susan. See ya. You know we never do takes. This is hilarious. Yeah, I'm going to stop <laughs> recording. So, you missed your cue, Susan. <laughs> I told you I didn't know when. Oh, boy. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> I thought, well, do I do it? Do I not? Do I go? You know what? I was like, I was waiting for the delayed thing to kick in. That was going to be even more hilarious. But if you, uh, if you miss it, just just woo away. It's woo that's away. right. We'll 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 yeah. lean right into that. <laughs>